You're listening to episode 149 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? Before I introduce today's guest, happy first day of NaNoWriMo. Today, November 1st, marks the first day of NaNoWriMo, which is so exciting. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, NaNoWriMo is short for National Novel Writing Month, and it's a month-long challenge where writers from all over the world pledge to hit a specific word count goal each day for the entire month of November with the mission of completing a 50,000-word novel by November 30th. I participated in 2016, and I fully understand how difficult NaNoWriMo can be. I know a lot of you storytellers are participating this year, and I want to give you some extra love and support throughout the month. So I've put together two awesome tools to help you stay motivated. The first is a private pop-up Facebook group where I'm posting daily check-ins to keep you accountable and staying sane with a community of 88 Cups of Tea listeners during NaNoWriMo 2018. And yes, you heard that right. I'm posting every single day throughout November so you have a digital space to rely on for that extra loving and support to help you reach your goal at the end of the month. If you'd love to be a part of this pop-up Facebook group, head over to facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea x NaNoWriMo. If you're down for the challenge of committing to show up every single day to check in with the pop-up group, we'd love for you to join. And the second is a guide I've put together of 25 carefully curated prompts to jumpstart story ideas. This is the perfect tool to have by your side during NaNoWriMo to push past any writer's block or use it as a preventative. Writer's block is something I've been hearing from so many of you. So for several weeks, I wrote down notes during conversations with my family over dinner dug through the conversations that stirred my soul the most during my podcast recordings, and formulated questions that would inspire story ideas with the same kind of transparency and potency. So what can you do with all these incredible stories you'll dig up as a result from these prompts? You can use them for things like inspiration for dialogue between characters or work out a character's objective. I mean, you can even do pretty awesome world building stuff with this. The possibilities are endless. From now till November 30th, I'm offering a 20% off discount code for those of you taking on the Nano Challenge. Head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash shop and enter the code NANOSTORYTELLERS at checkout to grab your copy of Storytelling Prompts. And you know what else is pretty cool? Grabbing yourself a copy will also go to support 88 Cups of Tea. I want all of you NaNoWriMo badasses out there to know that 88 Cups of Tea has your back throughout this challenge and I'm wishing you all the luck. Now on to today's conversation, we have the wonderful Jay Rubin with us today. Jay is a Japanese-English translator and novelist. Some of his best-known translations are of the works of Japanese novelist Haruki Murakami. Those include works like 1Q84 and Blind Willow Sleeping Woman. Jay has recently curated and published a new anthology of astounding Japanese short stories titled The Penguin Book of Japanese Short Stories, which also includes an introduction by Haruki Murakami himself. In today's episode, we learn how Jay fell in love with the Japanese culture and language and how that led him to translating Japanese literature. 
we get an inside look into the process of translating Japanese to English, two languages that are nearly impossible to translate literally, and the complexity of finding the true meaning of a text. Jay also dives into the format of his new book of Japanese short stories and how he passionately decided on which stories to put into the book. Let's jump right in because you're really going to be amazed with Jay. Hey everyone, I am so excited to have today's guest with us today. Y'all already know in our private Facebook group, I mentioned that I'm very excited to have him on. We have none other than Jay Rubin. Jay, how are you? I'm none other than myself, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> a little strange to be to hear myself introduced that way, but no, I'm fine. It's just a, another beautiful day here in Seattle. You're so cool. I'm very, very excited to just jump into having a conversation with you and just getting to know you more and sharing more about your stories and your background. When did you first realize that you had a love for translation, a love for the Japanese language, or even the culture? Did you travel to Japan and did you fall in love with the culture when you were there? How did that happen? I had no Japanese background at all. I think when I was in high school, I maybe read one or two books on Zen. Uh, Alan Watts, you know, The Way of Zen. I read a couple of books, and I don't remember being swept away or anything. I, I, I didn't have a determination to pursue Zen or any anything of that sort. But I kind of had a taste of something. And then toward the end of my second year of college, I had a kind of a free quarter left. I was at the University of Chicago. We had quarters there rather than semesters. And, and there was a quarter when I had room for some kind of elective. I was thinking probably from the following year, I would go into either philosophy or English. I hadn't made up my mind yet. The one thing that occurred to me was that I wanted to do something non-Western. That was my only preconception about what course I was going to choose to take in the last quarter of my second year. And uh, I think there was a, a Chinese history course available, several courses, but the one that attracted me was an introduction to Japanese literature. So I took this uh, just totally on a whim. I took this uh, course as maybe my last chance to read something non-Western. I figured that would, you know, from the following year, I would be stuck in a in a major, and, and I wouldn't have a chance to do something non-Western. And uh, so I took a course by a professor I had never heard of named Edwin McClellan, and it was an in introduction to Japanese literature, and it, and it just sort of blew me away. I was just not uh, not prepared to be so, so uh, enamored. Taken, taken with it. Yeah, it was really a, a surprise, and I think it has a lot to do with McClellan's teaching uh, he was a great teacher. Uh, there are lots of people in the, in the field of Japanese literature now who, even though they weren't his students, they, they, they heard a talk that he gave or something of that sort. He was just a very influential um, person. And uh, he, I, I, I had a whole quarter of listening to him talk about Japanese literature. And, and uh, the one thing that he that he did so very well was um, that um, was to bring in the original text of any any book we had read. Of course, we we were all just being introduced to Japanese literature through English translation. There, there was nobody in the class who knew Japanese, uh, and it, it was strictly an introductory thing. So uh, he he would assign the books in English, but he would always bring the Japanese book with him to class. 
And he always had something to say about the translation and about how something didn't make it through or the here's, here's what's going on in the original that you can't get from reading the translation. So he really whet my appetite for, for reading these, these works in the original. I really wanted to see what it was like to read the Japanese in the original. And it was, uh, after that course ended, I, um, I signed up for a Japanese language course starting in the fall, but I was I was too impatient at that point. At that summer, I was I was driving an ice cream truck. Come to think of it, and uh, I bought the textbooks that they were going to be using in uh, in the course in that fall, and I started studying it on my own, practicing writing Japanese, writing the Chinese characters that are used in Japanese. Uh, during my breaks, when I wasn't selling ice cream to kids, I was writing Chinese characters on, on banana skins and uh, got really obsessed with the whole thing. I remember my, my boss came to the truck one day to see, you know, check up on me, see how I was doing. And he noticed these weird bananas in the truck. You know, I had to buy, I had to buy bananas so that I could make banana splits. So there were always bananas on the truck. And I, and I found that writing on banana skins with a ballpoint pen was extremely smooth and, and, <laughs> and exciting in its own way. So I, uh, I used to practice my characters writing on the banana skin. So my boss came to the truck one day and said, what are, what are those? What's this banana? What are these bananas? And I, I said, oh, those are just Chinese bananas. And he, and he was happy with that. I just, just explained that I had bought these, uh, these Chinese bananas at the grocery store. And that was the end of that. But uh, that was the beginning of my study of Japanese. It was on my own. And, of course, from fall, I started taking the course and destroyed my education from that point on. Because <laughs> I had to spend so much time learning these thousands of characters and, uh, and phonetic script and whatnot, you know, there are three different scripts you have to learn for Japanese and uh, it just takes forever. So um, instead of going into philosophy and learning about the great ideas, I was slowly learning how to write or, or read. Uh, can you tell me where the bathroom is or other deep things like that? So I spent the rest of my the, the, what I have. I had two more years as an undergraduate, and I think uh, it was I would only take one course per quarter of the Japanese language. But it was so time consuming. I, I have a feeling it was seventy five percent of my time was spent learning Japanese. Wow. Okay. So how long? How many years do you feel like you had to study before you had a very strong grasp and confidence? Yeah, I'm waiting for that to happen. Yeah, right. Stop showing off, please. You're you're like a master, okay? Come on. What about compared to those who are like trying to get a handle of like, how are you? We'll feel like we'll I, never I be able to live up. I will say that I, I wonder if somebody had really impressed on me the the difficulty of of mastering the language at that point. I might not have gone on with it. I mean, it really took at least five years to begin to feel comfortable with uh, with Japanese texts. And that was just beginning. Were you okay with speaking as well? Because I know for Chinese, I'm able to speak some. Uh, I'm pretty okay with it, but I cannot write for my life. Mm. So for you, mm -hmm. I know you're able to write and read. Are you able to speak it as well pretty confidently? Um, well, especially in those days, we had a book 
the, our, our textbook was uh, it concentrated on 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 reading on writing reading writing and reading and uh, I don't think I actually had a conversational Japanese course till I had at least two years of the language um, under my belt and then they at Chicago they didn't know anything about spoken language so they i remember they hired a graduate student a japanese graduate student in in geography who just happened to be at, at chicago and got her to to speak with a, a handful of students so that we would have some kind of conversational practice and i really i think it was the summer i graduated i went to i went to an intensive course at columbia in new york and that was my first serious uh, course on on speaking japanese and i i've i've i to to some degree i've never really recovered from that that <laughs> slow start it's uh, i've always been much more comfortable with text than with uh, with conversation i mean i i can certainly get get by in japan and i've been i've given lots of talks in japanese and i i've written essays and whatnot in Japanese, I, I certainly function in the language, but it's uh, uh, there's there's always a kind of, especially now in my old age when I when I don't hear so well, I really have a, a lot of trouble understanding what people say. I I, I have that problem with people in English, but uh, <laughs> when they Japanese is particularly hard for me to 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 hear these days. I'm going to Japan next month. I've got two talks lined up. I'm going to give a talk on this anthology of modern Japanese short stories at Waseda University. And uh, then I'm going to go to Kyoto and give a talk on, uh, on uh, yeah, come to think of it, the talk at Waseda is going to be in English. They, oh, no. No, yeah, that, that one's in English. I don't know why they decided that. And the, I've got a talk to give in, in Kyoto. Uh, which is not to be it's 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 about working with murakami and working working on um um meiji period writers like like soseki and that's that's in japanese wow oh my so god so I, I do these things i mean i, I can function in the language but th there's always a I, I, uh, something in the back of my mind that i'm i'm not quite getting it God, Jay, why are you so cool? I have no idea what you're talking about. Don't you give me that excuse that you can't hear me right now. Can you tell my grandchildren and my my kids that how cool I am? Because I don't think they realize it. You know what? You put them on this call right now, and I'm happy to tell them. <laughs> I'm going to tell them how lucky they are to have such an awesome, badass grandpa like you. Seriously, that's so cool. Okay, I'm super curious. What was the year, do you remember, when you first started, like the first five years that you were studying Japanese for the first time ever? What years were those between? Mm, I graduated from the University of Chicago in 1963, and I, at that point I had two years of language behind me, and I went directly into their MA program and did two more years of Japanese. So 65, I had had four years, again, of really language study that concentrated on, on text rather than speaking and i so i had those those four years behind me and uh went to tokyo for the first time 
McClellan was pretty much the, the pioneer of teaching Japanese at that point. When you first went to Japan, you were around how old? Like in your early 20s, I assume? 23, yeah. I have spent most of my time in Tokyo, and I, I, it's a great city. It's just really amazing. The, the um, Everything, I mean, if nothing else, they have the, the sumo headquarters there, you know, the main arena where sumo is done six times a year. Oh, no. Actually, they do that three times a year there and uh, three times in, in other places. Uh, I'm, I'm really fond of sumo, or at least watching it, not, not, not participating. <laughs> the variety of restaurants is just simply astounding. I mean, you just you, you can have any, any, kind of, any kind of ethnic food you can imagine there. I like being able to go around on, on the subway system. The subway system is amazing. It, it runs on time. It's clean. These days, I don't really travel for scenery anymore, or I tend to go to see people. And uh, I have friends in, in Tokyo that I, I enjoy seeing and playing the guitar with and things like that. So I, I have a lot of people to see in Tokyo, and I tend to go to Kyoto for a few days whenever I go to Japan. My wife is from Saga down in Kyushu, the far southern island of Japan. So we always go to Saga for a while. So I, I tend to go to those three places. We haven't really traveled around in Japan for quite a while now. I mean, you brought your children often to travel around Japan, yeah, growing up? Uh, not as often as I should have. No, I, I, uh, we had our son with us when he was three going on four, and he almost lost his English. And we, when we came back to to Cambridge, uh, he just announced one day, I'm not going to talk that way anymore. He's got childhood roots of the language that still work for him, but uh, uh, he, he just did not want to be bilingual. <laughs> he just didn't, didn't like what it, I don't know what was involved. But uh, So I, I kind of wish I had forced the issue a little more. I wish I had, our, our kids had. My daughter studied Japanese in college. She went to Middleburg. Middlebury is fantastic for, for teaching languages. She's still quite capable of uh, holding a conversation at a high level, but uh, it's, it's a learned language for her. She doesn't have that childhood intuition about the language. Actually, it's strange. My son has more of that because he, he was so immersed in the language at three, four, that, that, that kind of age. But he hardly did any formal study of the language, so he's uh, he's a... Whatever you do as a parent, it's wrong. You know, <laughs> both kids blame us for not having done the right thing. I just had this argument with my mom, and she just said, "You always blame me for everything." So that's why I'm laughing right now. But you know that us kids love you guys. Like we love our parents, and we just because you all are the closest to us. That's why it's easier for us to lash out at you guys no matter how wrong that is and disrespectful on our end, it's not right. But I think we take for granted knowing how much you guys love us as kids and know that you'll be there for us, at least kids who are lucky enough to have that kind of relationship with their parents. So a lot of us do take it for granted. But I, for one, can tell you that your kids love you guys no matter what. And if they blame you, it's because they love you the most. That's how it works. Can I write that down? Wait a second. <laughs> Jay, I am really excited to also ask you about how you first got into starting to translate works from Japanese to English. Like, how did that come about? 
where was it when this opportunity came where you're like, wow, okay, now I'm going to translate a book to English? Well, that goes back to Edwin McClellan, too. He was the first and only professor of Japanese literature I had ever met. I went into graduate school and I, I worked with him and we would talk about things that he was translating. He had already published one or two books that he had translated. So as far as I knew, that's what Japanese professors did. I mean, professors of Japanese literature translate books. It never crossed my mind that there would be anybody in the field who didn't translate. So it was a kind of uh, assumption that uh, that's part of the job, and I was being trained for the job. And as a graduate student, I remember I translated a passage or two of a story that we were working on, and he actually put it in print. He wrote an essay, some essay about I think it's I think it's his essay called Impressionism in Japanese Literature or something like that, and he quoted a paragraph that I had translated. So that was my first experience of of uh, having a a translation of mine get into print. And that was quite quite exciting. It was a lack of imagination on my part to think that it was possible to to be otherwise, and I just assumed what well, part of what I would be doing would be translating and. Uh, when I tried it, I enjoyed it. It was really that simple. Uh, some people just don't like the process. They just don't, I don't, I don't know what it is, but it doesn't appeal to them. I think the unpredictability of translation is what I like. You confront a page of these funny squiggles, and you can turn them in, into real English. And uh, the realer, the better. So just the sheer process of absorbing what's in the original text and then going from what's in your brain to what you put on the page in English is an exciting process for me. It's never stopped being exciting. That's what I've enjoyed doing more than anything. Of course, I've written books. I wrote a book about literary censorship in pre-war Japan. That was my, maybe, I guess it was my one and only really academic book that I published. It's called Injurious to Public Morals, and it's about how the police and other entities in, in the Japanese government came down on writers. And it was very much about the, the techniques that were used by the government to suppress, were, to suppress writing that they did not want to see on the page. So it was really quite a fascinating process for me. But that's about it for academic work. Uh, most of what I've done has been uh, more if anything, more impressionistic myself. It's the the totally subjective process of immersing yourself in a text and, and making and making it come out in your own language that uh, has always been the most uh, appealing part of the, of the work to me. I know you're talking about you love the process, but can you give me a little bit more of a deeper level of your process of what goes through your head? Like, do you read it once over, three times over? If you get stuck on a word, do you pull out a Japanese and English dictionary or references? It might be such a silly question, but... No, it's not silly at all. I'm just so curious. It sounds so exciting because you're getting me excited the way you sounded so happy and just so inspired when you do translate things. It's all of the kinds of things you said. You know, some stories, you if you, if you feel that you haven't quite absorbed it, you will want to read it two or three times before you attempt to put it into English. Other things, I've rarely, very rarely translated anything that I haven't read first. I always think it's a good idea to, to read over a work first 
because that way you get sensitized to particular words, particular items of vocabulary that the writer is emphasizing or that the writer is using in unusual ways or things of that sort. So it's really good to a sense of particular words that you're going to want to be very, very careful about translating. You can't get that sense unless you've read the whole work. You come to realize how a particular word is being used in the overall work. So I, I, I don't know if I've ever translated something that I hadn't at least zip through to some extent. One thing you don't do is mechanically translate. It is not only not a good idea, it's totally impossible in the case of languages like English and Japanese that are so utterly different. It is absolutely impossible to translate Japanese literally. And it works the other way too. It's impossible to translate English literally into Japanese. The two languages just work so differently I mean, any, you can think of anything like thank you. You can't say thank you in Japanese. People always say the Japanese are very polite and they're always thanking people. But yet you don't say thank you for one thing. You say some, something more literally like, well, if you want to say arigato, arigato is a, an adverb. Think of that. You probably know the word arigato for th as thank you. You know it as thank you, but it's only because the textbooks have told you that arigato is thank you. It's, it, it is... That is impossible to come by, is more or less literally what you're saying in Japanese when, you, when you're thanking someone with arigato. But that, that, then again, depends on the situ situation. You might use another, another expression, something like sumimasen, which literally speaking, well, <laughs> getting into literalism. In any case, sumimasen is a word that you will use, that you will learn in Japanese as uh, I'm sorry, or excuse me. And that is very commonly used to say thank you under circumstances where someone has voluntarily done something, done you a favor that you weren't asking for. So you don't thank them with arigato, you thank them with sumimasen. Um, sumimasen, again, the textbooks will translate that as excuse me or I'm sorry, but it isn't, that isn't literally what it means. It, it means will not end. Sumanai, sumu, sumu is, is the verb. Sumu means to end. Suma, sumanai is the non-polite version of sumu. And then what you're saying for the everyday expression is sumimasen. And what you're saying is, in effect, you're saying literally, my indebtedness to you knows no end. I can never, I can never pay you enough. I can never do enough for you to make up for what you've just done to me. And of course, the only, <laughs> the only reasonable way to translate that will be, I'm sorry, or excuse me, because that's, what, that's the equivalent expression in English. But to me, it's always fascinating to think about what you are, not, not what the textbooks give you as equivalent expressions, but what you are actually saying so that even something as simple as as thank you is so utterly different from what we say in English, thank you. What are we saying literally? We're saying, I am thanking you. I am expressing my thanks to you, my gratitude to you for what you've done, just done or something of the sort. You don't say that in Japanese. And, and it's true of anything. Like, like uh, it might rain today. What, how do you say it might rain today? Well, you say... 今日は雨が降るかもしれない. 
今日は today, comma, 雨が降る rain, subject marker, the が降る to fall, かもしれない is perhaps even it is unknowable. So how do you say it might rain today? You say, as for today, rain might fall. Well, see, I've already adapted it to English by saying might because you don't say might. You say it is unknowable. It is even unknowable to whether rain will fall or not or something to that effect. To me, that's that's what I love about doing Japanese. You, you immerse yourself in this totally, totally linguistically alien world. And it's, it's really exciting to be able to think in that language, to be able to speak in that language and, and to read things and, and turn them into your own language. That's the biggest part of the excitement of this field for me. So the Penguin Book of Japanese Short Stories, how did that come about? I was open to the suggestion of a, an editor that I worked with at Penguin. He came up with the idea. I, I was not planning at any point to put together a book of short stories, but my friend Simon Winder, my book Rashomon and 17 Other Stories is the first Penguin book that I did. And that was also at his suggestion. He said, how would you like to translate? I've been reading this writer named Akutagawa, and I think his stuff looks really good. The translations are just terrible. How would you like to do a new book of Akutagawa stories and get Murakami to write the introduction? So I thought, well, that sounds like a great idea, but I'm sure Murakami would never do that. He's always saying he's not interested in the literature of his own country. So I'll ask him, but what the hell? I'm sure that he won't do it, and then Penguin won't want to do the project because they're mostly interested in getting Murakami to put his name on it. And he immediately accepted. He totally, totally uh, amazed me that he was interested in writing an introduction to uh, th this book of Akutagawa stories. So that's what that's how we got working on that. Uh, do you know the story? Do you know the movie Rashomon? Mm -mm, no, I don't. It's a Kurosawa movie. Um, God, you really have to see that movie right away. I, you, you get rented as soon as we hang up. Okay. Um, it's it's such a, it's such a great movie. It's a and it's it's a story about providing three or four different eyewitnesses to the same event, and they all have their own way of looking at it, and they're all different, and they contradict each other. But anyway, Rush Omon is the the movie, at least as it's been put together, is primarily that story. Penguin is, was interested in having a book with the word Rashomon in the title because that's probably one of the best-known items of Japanese culture. It's this Kurosawa movie. They wanted to call it Rashomon and other stories, but there were already two other books that existed called Rashomon and other stories. So I said, at least make it a little different. Call it Rashomon and 17 other stories. Once I finished choosing the stories to put in it, I had 18 stories. So we did that, and it was just wonderful working with this editor. A few years later, he came up with another idea. He said, how would you like to put together a, an anthology of Japanese short stories? And I thought that was a good idea. It was a much bigger job than I imagined it would be. I just had to read huge amounts of things. And, and meanwhile, I was working on my own novel. I, had a, I, have, I don't know if you know, but I have a novel called The Sun Gods. I had a great time writing that book, but it also it, it delayed the Penguin Book of Japanese Short Stories by at least two years. It was supposed to be out two or three years ago. 
but I got busy uh, editing and, and revising my, my novel, The Sun Gods, which is uh, set in Seattle during World War II. And it's con- it concentrates on the concentration camps that we set up in our country during the war to lock Japanese people up. Totally different, of course, from my work on Japanese literature. But anyway, I was busy with the sun gods and therefore didn't get to the Penguin Book of Japanese short stories for several years. But it was Simon Winder's idea, and I had a great time finding out what was out there. I guess I I had spent so much time working on Murakami that I had just let a lot of things slide. And I got it was a good chance to go back and read things I should have read some, some time ago. I found myself discovering stories that were sort of somewhere deep in my brain, and, and uh, I hadn't really realized how important they were to me. Now, a lot of this book consists of stories that I remembered for decades at a time. They're just, I guess they were, I could say they were part of a formative experience for me. Could you share with our community, like around the span of years that these different works were published? Earliest one came out in 1898. Wow. The newest one is uh, 2014. So it's quite a span. I know that you mentioned that you have known some of these works and others. You wish that you came across it earlier. But how did you, in the end, find out about these specific short stories? Did you do research? Did you hear recommendation? Was this something that your teacher recommended? Was this something you've just been hearing about for a long time? I asked everybody I knew in the field, tell me one story that you can't get out of your head. That was the main criterion for me. Give me one story that keeps coming back to you in your everyday life, echoes in somewhere in the back of your head. I want stories that that are going to stick in people's brain. And I got several good suggestions. I I ended up mostly choosing things that, that had stuck in my brain. That's what I was mostly looking for, something that had lived inside me for a good long time, because once I had read the thing, I couldn't forget it. Most of the stories in this book are things that I found unforgettable. Which is a short story in there that you feel like resonated with you most? God, you know, it's, I, could, I could give you a few, but uh, there's a story of Murakami's in this book that you usually can't find anywhere else that i've just i just absolutely love that that one it's called uh, the 1963 1982 girl from ipanema that's in the nature and memory section of the book i kind of assumed right from the beginning that i was going to do a, a typical chronological list of stories that started at the earliest and, and then ended at the latest but i the more I worked on it, the more I realized I wanted to divide them up into categories where stories are more interrelated. So I have a section called Nature and Memory in which uh, one of the stories is the 1963-1982 Girl from Ipanema. Maybe it's almost worth buying the book just to get that because you can't get it in, in any other English collections of Murakamis. They It was supposed to appear in the book called Blind Willow Sleeping Woman. He has three now, three or four collections of short stories in English. The first one was called The Elephant Vanishes. And then several years later, the Knopf put together a collection called Blind Willow Sleeping Woman. And one of the stories, it was supposed to be 25 stories. One of the stories in that book was my translation of the 1963-1982 Girl from Ipanema. And at the last minute, they 
it had to be eliminated because somebody discovered that we didn't have permission from the holders of the music copyright to use the lyrics. Murakami had gotten permission to use the lyrics in his original. I, I just figured that was it. it. That would take care of permission. So there was no permission to publish this story in English with the lyrics from the song, The Girl from Ipanema. So if you look at the British collection of The Blind Willow and Sleeping Woman, the introduction says, here are these 25 stories, which so-and-so and so-and-so. And then you, if you try to count them up, you find out there are only 24 stories in the book. At the last minute, they had to pull this story. The English, the English publisher didn't do a very good job of revising the introduction. So it still talks about 25 stories in the book. But this was not going to ever come out. So during this process of putting together the Penguin Book of Japanese Short Stories, I, I suggested to Simon, why don't we try to get permission finally after all these years for this story? It's a wonderful story. It's one of my favorite Murakami pieces. And uh, let's see if we can get permission to publish it. So it's in this book. If you want to read the, this Murakami's Girl from Ipanema story, you have to read it in the, the Penguin Book of Japanese Short Stories. Incredible. This is very exciting, Jay. Like, you're, you're just getting me pumped up for this. <laughs> for anyone who is picking this up for the first time, how would you best advise them to go through this book? Well, I'd like them to look at the table of contents, first of all. Then they'll see that they would not be reading a, a lot of stories in chronological order if they read the book in its order, because... The book is subdivided into sections. Japan and the West is the first section. Then Loyal Warriors, Nature and Memory, Modern Life and Other Nonsense, Dread, and Disasters, Natural and Man-Made. I guess that was the first category that I realized I wanted to make. I was kind of assuming from the beginning that it would be just chronologically arranged bunch of stories. and then it, But it occurred to me I really would like to include stories about the earthquake and tsunami and nuclear meltdown in, yeah. in 2011. So that was kind of my first category. And I, I realized I wanted to have those. And why not pair those with other disaster stories? So I got the disasters, natural and man-made section in mind first. And then I realized why not arrange the whole book like a a video store, you know, uh, you, you walk into a video store, you could you could pick up any video at random. But of course, video stores, though they don't exist anymore for the most part, you go to the section you want. You go to the thrillers, or you go to the the comedy section, or something like that. So I, I wanted to arrange this book like a video store. If you wanted to read something a funny story, you go to Modern Life and Other Nonsense. If you want to be scared by what it, what you read, you read something under dread, and then something a little more historically arranged, disasters natural and man-made. This is arranged by particular disasters that hit Japan, the 1923 earthquake, the 1945 atomic bombings, post-war Japan, the Kobe earthquake of 1995. So those all come in chronological order, not in the chronology of when they were written or published, but the chronology of the of the disasters. I'm so excited about this, Jay. You have no idea. And I have to say, <laughs> the title you came up with for Modern Life and Other Nonsense for that category, oh my gosh, I think that's hilarious. I, that's probably my favorite title out of all the categories. I do have a question that I am very curious about. I know you working with Murakami, translating some of his works and also translating these works 
you know, we were just talking about how translating from Japanese to English, English to Japanese, there's, it's just literally impossible. There's just so many meanings, so many underlying meanings in the phrase and the words and how they're used. So are there ever moments where you come across certain phrases or texts where you're like, oh God, I, I'm not, I haven't heard of this phrase before. I wonder what the meaning is behind this. However, where you have Murakami, he's a living author. So I'm not sure your process, if you've ever reached out and, and double check with Murakami, Hey, this is what I'm getting. And I just wanted to run across and make sure that this is what you intended. Yeah, it's true. It's good to have a living author to, to, to be in touch with. For like but, reference. Uh, yeah. But um, actually, this talk that I'm going to be giving in Kyoto is is uh, about that problem. Uh, it describes some of my experience working with Murakami and going to him for advice on how he wants certain passages dealt with. And then my attempts to go to Natsume Soseki, who was an author who died in 1916, I've translated him a fair amount. and. I got so obsessed with, especially with one of his books that I, and I came up with a, an analytical scheme of how I thought the images and the colors and, and whatnot were working in the book. And I just was dying to test this, test my theory out on, on, on Soseki. I wanted to be able to ask him and, uh, well, he had been dead for a while when I was born. So it, I found that rather difficult, but uh, I did actually try to contact him at one point. It didn't work. <laughs> I, I, I tried to have a, a mini seance with his spirit. I'm, that's that's what I'm going to be talking about in Kyoto. But uh, it was a it was a particular day when I was working on this book and sitting in the sitting in the office of a professor that I was working with at the time in, in Tokyo and surrounded by his books. And the professor would let me, used to let me use his office when, when he wasn't there. And I figured, and the sun was beginning to, to go down. And I figured if there's any, any place in the world where I can come in contact with Soseki's spirit, this is it. This is an absolutely Soseki space in, in the universe. So I sat there, and I must have sat there like three or four hours waiting for it to happen. It didn't happen, <laughs> unfortunately. But uh, that's how obsessive I can get about uh, my work in Japanese literature. It was really – I'm a total non-believer in any kind of supernatural. Somehow at that, at that point, my mind was open for it. It was kind of a Murakami thing, you know. If you read Murakami, you find all this dark imagery, and his he sinks down into wells and goes into underground worlds and things of that sort. I'd love the listeners to hear more about like what you're excited about right now. Well, I'd really love to hear get some feedback on this book. It, it, it there were some very good reviews published in in the UK. And of course, the book came out first in the UK, but it, it, let's see, it was the end of June, and it only came out here in September. So it's just, I don't know if reviewers are picking up on it. I'd really like to get some, some feedback here. 
Do you have social media if they could reach out to you to let you know? Social media. Oh, you mean Facebook? And... Yes. No, I never, I never wanted to get on those things. If they can't reach out to you, would you like me to ask my listeners for feedback about your work? And I could email it to you if you'd love. I know you don't have social media, but you let me know what you'd like. We can move forward and I can email it over to you in case you are curious to hear their thoughts. Actually, I have a, a an email account that I almost never use. I wouldn't mind if people wrote to that. Okay, sure. Yeah. What What is that email? Jrub at Gmail. Just J-A-Y-R-U-B at gmail.com. Okay. J-A-Y-R-U-B at gmail.com. Done and no. done. I, I don't, I'm not expecting thousands of, of messages to come pouring in. I'm sure that I, I'll enjoy hearing a few messages and I get things now and then out of nowhere and I usually answer them. That's really sweet. Okay. I'll make sure to let them know. Jay, you are so wonderful. Thank you for giving me so much of your time. Thanks a lot. And that wraps up our episode with Jay Rubin. Jay, thank you so much for letting us into your world. It was so fascinating to learn about translating and the complexity around it all. It was truly a pleasure to have you on the show. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. If you have the time, please send Jay an email over at jrub at gmail.com. That's J-A-Y-R-U-B at gmail.com. Let him know your thoughts about his episode or share your feedback about his new collection of short stories. I know he'd really love to hear from you. If you're participating in NaNoWriMo this month, don't forget that I'm hosting a pop-up private Facebook group just for you. I post check-ins every single day to help keep you accountable and motivated with fellow 88 Cups of Tea listeners who are also doing the Nano Challenge. To join, head over to facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea x NaNoWriMo. Be sure to take advantage of the 20% off discount code for the 25 storytelling prompts over in our shop at 88cupsofteacom slash shop. It's valid for this month only, so use the code NANOSTORYTELLERS at checkout. Have a beautiful and super productive rest of your week. Good luck to all of you NanoRimo storytellers, and I'll catch you next, next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.